Go ahead and ask you to turn over to Psalm number 19. That's the psalm that we're going to be uh, unpacking together this morning as we keep working our way through this ancient book of songs, the songs of God's people that have ministered to thousands and thousands over the thousands of years since they were first put down on paper. If you're here this morning uh, and you don't yet know Jesus and you're interested in learning more about what it means to follow him, I want to add my welcome to Matt's and tell you we're so glad that you're here. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. Everything we're doing here this morning comes straight out of the Bible. We're just trying to understand it and be faithful to it. That's all we're trying to do because we believe God's spoken to us there. And we'd love the chance to talk to you about what's in that book. So there are, there are Bibles provided for you on the center aisle, down at the, at the end of each aisle, and somebody's sitting down there would be happy to pass one to you if you need one we'd love for you to take it follow along this morning it's a lot easier to follow what's going to happen for the next little bit here if you have a bible in front of you and you can go with me through this verse by verse Uh, and then we'd love to talk to you later about what else you'll find in this book uh, actually, the, the Bible is one of the main things we're talking about. And we're always talking about what's there. But today, in this psalm, we're actually talking about what it means that God has spoken to us. One of the reasons we're in the psalms, one of the reasons they've been so valuable and so treasured by the church over the years is that the psalms help us understand what it looks like to relate to God. One of the most distinctive things about Christianity, one of its basic claims, if you're interested in learning more about what it means to be a Christian, here's something you need to start with. You need to know this. One of the most basic things Christians believe is that the reason there's something rather than nothing, the reason there's a world here, the reason we're here, the reason anything exists is that there is a God who made everything that is. And what we believe about that God is that it's not just some sort of generic life force moving through everything that is, but is actually personal. A person who wants to be known, who wants to know. A person who invites a, a, a relationship with the things that he's made. But it's one thing to say that God exists as this personal being who wants to know me and relate to me. And another thing to know how I might talk to him. How I might hear from him. How we might relate to one another. What does it look like to relate to something you can't see or hear audibly? And what does it mean to relate to something who's it's a totally different kind of being than I am? I mean, we all know how hard it is to communicate with just other humans. Even other humans that grew up in the same place we did, or that are maybe the, roughly the same age as we are, or had the same education level we are. Even when all the factors are in our favor, we talk past each other all the time. We're always struggling to understand one another. Now, imagine the difference between you know, someone who grew up same town as you did, who's basically the same age as you are, has the same level of education, and the challenges of communicating as a 30-something-year-old with a, a three- or a four-year-old from a totally different culture, speaking a totally different language. And then imagine it's not just across age gaps or language gaps, but across an entire sort of being. Even the idea just stretches your mind. I mean, I'm not one of those people who thinks you can talk to animals and actually understand them. Maybe you are. But as, as intuitive and good at communicating as a dog might be, like, there's just a real low ceiling on how much I'm ever going to know about what it feels like to live life as a dog. Like the internal reality of that, the perceptions, the experience of life. Being, cross-being communication is just really limited. So imagine, uh, imagine what it would mean to communicate with God 
who has the power to, to make things out of nothing. What it would mean to enter into what his world looks like, to his perception on things. Really, it's ridiculous to think that you could. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that you could. Unless, unless that God separated from you by so many factors outside your control decided to speak to you in a way that you could understand. The one way any of us will ever relate to the transcendent being we're all longing to connect with is if that being makes himself understandable to us. How do I know how to relate to him as I desire to do? Well, the Psalms in general are big help. But Psalm 19, Psalm 19 is just right on the money. The whole point of this Psalm is that God has spoken. That he has decided to make himself known to those of us who are his handiwork. That he actually wants us to understand what he's like and to live lives that are full and fruitful and, and happy because they're lived in light of who he is and in light of what he's told us about himself. This psalm celebrates the gift of God speaking to us. That's all it's about. And what I want to do as we walk through it is just help you recognize where he's pointing us. God speaks to us in several places, several ways. We want to come away from this morning with just a deeper sense of where we can listen to God if we want to relate to him. I want to begin by... uh, by reading the whole psalm. It's not a very long one, so unlike last week where we just took it in little bite-sized sections, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read all 14 verses of this beautiful song. It's been called one of the great lyrics in the history of the world, and I think you'll see why. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless 
and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. You can be seated. Where can we hear from God? That's the question I want to ask of this psalm. It's all about God speaking to us. And here is the first answer to that question. We listen to God in nature. Where can I hear from God? Well, you could start by listening to God in nature. It's the first place God has communicated to us about himself. It's in the world around us. The psalmist is absolutely captivated by the beauty and the majesty of nature in these first few verses of the psalm. And his view of it, what I want to make sure you notice is that his view of nature and what's being said there and where it comes from, what it means. His view of nature is vastly different, both from the ancient people that he lived around and from many modern people today. I want to help you see how different his view is so that you can embrace it with eyes open. It's the first key to understanding what God is saying to us about himself. So here's how it was different from ancient peoples. The ancient peoples that the psalmist would have lived around Their world was enchanted. They were absolutely taken up with it, just like he is. They were seeing beauty and wonder everywhere. They thought that the natural world was divine. They were bowled over by the sun and its power. It just made sense to them as a next step to assume it was a living power. They made a god out of it. Same thing out of storms, out of the sea, out of fertility of the crops and of families. They took the things that awed them about the natural world and, and, and made them into personal deities. They were obsessed with the skies. Ancient people were just completely bowled over by the skies, and, and rightly so. I mean, imagine what the skies must have looked like to them without all the buildings around to block the view, without all the ambient light to keep you from seeing the stars at night. Imagine what the skies would have looked like to those people When they looked up, what did they see? They saw heavens full of lights too many to number. They saw skies that stretched on too far to follow, even with the eyes. And they didn't know the half of it. They couldn't have even imagined the size of the universe we can now recognize with new telescopes that we've got access to. And a better understanding of how things are expanding and at what rate Our psalmist, like the ancients, is in awe of the heavens when he looks up and sees the sun or looks up and sees the stars. But the key difference between our psalmist and his ancient neighbors is that he doesn't see these things as divine, but rather as the result of divine power. He's no less bowled over by the scale of the skies and what's in them but he sees them as a handiwork of something even greater. The result of this power and creativity that's unmatched by anything else in our world. The thing that he notices, his main takeaway, is verse 1, the second line. This, everything he sees around him, it proclaims God's handiwork. And that means that nature is not just important for its own sake. Nature bears messages to us from a creator who wants us to see and to learn about him through what we see. 
That's what comes through in verses 3 and 4. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The skies are seen by everyone. Everybody gets this message. Their line, their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words stretch to the ends of the world. Everybody sees it. These skies aren't full of gods. But they are messages from and about God. So he's different from his ancient neighbors, but he's, he's also just as different from many of us today. Because, because think about this. Think about the common, like this side of the scientific revolution view of the natural world. What you might call a naturalistic perspective. I think even those of us who are Christians often sort of imbibe some of that, even without recognizing it. We know more about the natural world and how it works, more about what to expect from it, than any society in history. And not because we know everything. I mean, things are always getting challenged through new experiments and new technologies that reveal new facts about the world that we didn't see before. It's not like the things that we believe now we're always going to believe. We may, we may think radically differently even next year than we do today. We're still learning, of course. But we have accumulated an incredible mass of knowledge about how the world works that allows us to predict things, to understand and anticipate things in a really accurate, reliable way. We've especially been growing in our understanding of how ordered the world is. How things really do work according to some sort of plan you can recognize, that you can see and build around. So, for example, you guys excited about the eclipse? It's coming. The eclipse is coming. Total eclipse. If you, uh, consider this a public service announcement if you didn't know about this yet. Total eclipse is coming. And it's coming right over Nashville. We are like in almost the best place in the whole world to see this thing. One of the best in the last hundred years. And it's coming right over my backyard. So a lot of this eclipse t- talk is going on. You know, all the parks are holding these special viewing things. You can, buy all, you can go over here to the Army-Navy surplus store and get yourself some of the glasses that you need to avoid damaging your eyes. All this are talking about. Here's the, here's the main thing that I've noticed. The thing that struck me about this eclipse. Do you know they, they know... They say they know exactly the minute when that eclipse will hit us. And they know how long it's going to last in each location. That you can actually get, uh, Josh Gibson was telling me uh, recently, you can actually get a longer viewing experience if you go up to Gallatin area, to, uh, to uh, uh, what's it called, Bledsoe Creek State Park. You can actually get maybe an extra half, half a minute, 30 extra seconds of eclipse viewing if you go up there than if you stay here in Nashville. They know when it's going to hit us. They know how long it's going to last. It's all just a result of math. Because the sun just follows its pattern. We've been watching it. For a long time. And it still works the same as it did when we started paying attention. So, when you see that, when you come to assume that sort of order and expectation about how the world works, I think what can easily happen is boredom. And it takes a total eclipse to get us paying attention to the sun. I mean, mostly when I notice it, it's to complain. It's disenchanted to me. Lost something of the transcendence and the awe that these ancient people just took for granted. That regularity kills something of its power 
to land on us and to move us. It doesn't have to be that way. One of my favorite quotes of all, of all books, is a quote from G.K. Chesterton's classic book, Orthodoxy, about 100 years ago. This guy was just, he, he lived with this, this almost childlike sense of, of awe and wonder of the, at the world. And there's this one place in Orthodoxy where he talks about, he's sort of bewailing how the modern world has lost its sense of awe, how everything works according to plan. We've got all these technologies built upon, those, about, uh, upon order and expectation. And it's just kind of taking the fun out of it. In fact, we're bored by repetition. He contrasts the way that we, most of us adults think about things that are repeated over and over and over and over with the way most kids think. He invites us to imagine this. It might be true, he says, that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to lifelessness but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again! And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we We have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. Theatrical encore. That's how the psalmist sees the order that each day brings. Look at verse 4. In these skies, God has set a tent for the sun, given him a home, It's rising stretches over all of the heavens from the end of the one end of the world to the other. But look at how the sun goes about his rising. Verse 5. The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And normally in our culture we expect the bride to come to the groom. But I guess in the ancient world it was the other way around. Like on the day of the wedding that bridegroom goes and he gets his bride. Now imagine the joy and the purpose, the resilience the intensity of his walk. And that's how the psalmist imagines the sun. Like a strong man who just keeps on running with joy. When you see the the natural world, even in its order and repetition, as the bearer of messages to you from a God who loves you and wants you to find joy in what he's made, then you can depend on order. By all means, you can do the experiments many of you do for a living. You can bank on a dependable world and you can still see it as full of life, animation, even enchantment. 
you can still marvel that the sun is there again. Just look at it again. Just like yesterday. It's back again. And as powerful it is, as it is, as majestic, as irresistible and far-reaching, that sun is following orders. It's set on a track that God established for it. It rejoices to do its work. I want more of this enchantment in my relentlessly logical and technological life, don't you? Friends, Christians of all people have a fantastic reason to enjoy the world like this. Because like the ancients, we believe the world is full of, divi- of divinity. That there are traces of divinity all around us to be seen. But we believe that there is one God behind it all who has given us this world as a gift, as a message about his creativity and power to enjoy. The same foundation that grounds all the experiments you guys are doing, the same regularity and expectation of order that your work depends on, it inspires wonder because in all of it, in every trace of it, it's handiwork. It is a message sent by a craftsman, by an author, who means for his message to get through. Where do we hear from God? Well, the first place to start is just look around you. Listen for God in nature. Now, all that said, when you start listening for God in nature, you're going to face a dilemma. Because it's not always clear how to bring the messages of nature together. How to reconcile all the things that we hear in the natural world. Those of us who want to hear from God in nature have got a kind of dissonance that we've got to sort through. For as one person put it, the beauty of nature says one thing, but the harshness of nature says another. When you're looking at a mountain range from the comfort of your front porch rocking chair, that's one thing. When you're caught out on the face of a mountain in the midst of a snow and windstorm, well, that's another thing altogether. When you're looking at the beauty and transcendence of the ocean from the floor-to-ceiling windows of your beach condo, that's one thing. When what you're looking at is a tsunami rolling in, like happened, what was that, 10 years ago? See those, those pictures from beach condos watching that wave coming relentlessly, inescapably. Well, that's, that's another thing altogether. Nature doesn't always speak clearly even consistently. Because on the one hand, nature leads me to believe that life is precious and beautiful to be protected and cultivated. But given what often happens to life, nature is also telling me that life is cheap. It's fragile. Brutal, even. One of my favorite books about nature is a award-winning book from, from, I don't remember, maybe 30 years ago, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. This writer just went and lived in the Appalachian Mountains in a cabin next to a creek for a year and just wrote about stuff. 
She basically just went out and sat by the creek and just paid attention to one place. One place for a year. Actually with eyes open, not distracted by all the other moving pieces around her. One of the most gripping scenes is at the beginning of that book. Very beginning of it, she's setting up. The whole, most of the book is about this, what do we do with the fact that nature seems brutal but also beautiful? Grace but also violence all around us. She starts it out with, these, with, these, with a couple of images. There's this one image of just sitting by the creek when the light is just right. There was a certain time of day that she always wanted to go out because of the light and the way that it hit, the way that it was slanting. And from this one vantage point, it was like people were turning on lights as part of a light show. She imagined the whole world as a light show for her to consume where all of a sudden, one side of this mountain over here would poof, it would come, uh, come, come to life. And then a few minutes later, it's a big cypress tree near her that comes to life. And you can't even see the mountain. You didn't even know the tree was there before. But the light just hits it just right, and it comes alive. One thing after another, she's watching as if somebody's put on a fireworks display just for her. And then she also notices this one time where she comes walking alongside the creek, and she used, she's used to the frogs jumping out in front of her into the creek, right? They're, they're hidden in the grass. You start walking alongside the creek, and they're just jumping, going crazy. She walks up to this one that isn't moving. She, she stoops down and gets a closer look and it actually looks like, 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 like the frog's body is deflating. She notices a shadow move beneath the frog in the creek. Never gets a good sight of it. By the end of it, the, the frog's body is just skin, completely deflated and sinks to the bottom of the creek. The victim of some sort of super water bug poisons its victims, turns all their insides to liquid and drinks them out, like a balloon deflating. So Andy Hillard says, what do you do with that? (laughs) Is nature beautiful, full of grace and wonder? Is nature violent, harsh, unforgiving? If nature is all we had to go on, it would be reasonable to wonder well, even if we want to concede that there's a God who put it all here, is he still even around? I mean, if, the, if nature's the only message we had, you could be forgiven for thinking the message is someone or something was here, period. If he is around, does he even care about us? Like in any, any relationship, nonverbal communication is powerful. It's real but it is limited. Easy to misinterpret. Sometimes too ambiguous. Never enough to fully know. What we need if we're to understand God and who he is is more than what he said to us in nature. What we need, even if we don't deserve it, is for him to speak words to us, to tell us who he is and what he's like and how to understand the world that we're caught up in. We need God to speak words and that's exactly what the psalmist celebrates next beginning in verse 7 without even announcing a change in subject because in his mind he hasn't changed subjects he's still talking about God speaking to us we're not talking about nature anymore we're talking about the Bible we listen to God secondly not not, first we listen to God in nature secondly we listen to God in the Bible Look at how his subject shifts straight from celebrating the sun that that follows its course just like God told it to and with joy and there's nothing hidden from its heat and then the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple and the precepts of the Lord are 
are right and rejoicing the heart. You see how he goes. He no announcement, no point to, no transition. He's moved into just one more example of how God is already speaking to us. This section is full of beautiful parallelism. I, I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you notice how it's set up. So you've got these several statements naming God's words to us. They're all just different ways of saying the same thing. So he refers to the law of the Lord in verse 7, to the testimony of the Lord, to the precepts of the Lord, and the commandment of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. Do you see that? Each line calls it, labels it with a different, with a different, a different label. Then there's a description of what he's labeled. So the law of the Lord is perfect, is sure, Precepts are right, is pure, is clean, true. And then there's a description of the result with each one. Here's what you get because God has spoken to you. Reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether. Do you see how it's structured there? It's a beautiful, careful, articulate way of celebrating everything that God has said to us. One of the things that you might not have noticed, I wouldn't have if somebody hadn't pointed it out, is that he's also shifted here. In these verses, he's changed from using the generic word for God in the first six verses, and really only comes up there in the first verse, to using the special covenant name of God that was given as a gift to Israel, from God to Lord or Yahweh. Because the best you can get from looking at nature is the sense that there was something here, at least at one time, greater than nature that put it here. But in his word, God has given us far more. He has told us who he is. He has given us his name. He has said, not just, I was here, but I am. A God who is active, knowable, and lovable, and because of that, the psalmist is overcome with joy. You notice how he celebrates God's word here? It's reviving his heart and soul, makes him to rejoice, verse 8. Then in verse 10, he describes it as more precious than much fine gold, the most precious thing they could compare it to. Sweeter also than honey, the sweetest thing they could taste. Do you often feel that way about God's commandments about laws i'll be honest i do not i don't normally think of a law or a commandment as something that tastes sweet i need a little help here to understand where he's coming from there's a great essay on this psalm in the in a book by c.s lewis called reflections on the psalms we've got copies of it over here we try to keep copies throughout the series i think there's still some over here there's one there's an essay on this psalm and he, this is one of the main points that he asks questions about because he's not seeing it at least initially he wants to push further i mean he says i get obeying laws i understand that but loving them delighting in them even rejoicing in them i mean one of those laws is do not steal do you really expect, Lewis says, a man who's starving, hasn't had food in days, stumbles into a bakery, no money, fresh baked bread all around him? Do you really expect that man to delight in the fact that he can't steal it 
I mean, you might expect him to obey it. Uh, that'd be one thing. We would even honor that and celebrate it. But to delight and to love that he can't take that bread? Also, Lewis says, what does it mean to say that a law is true or perfect or sure? I mean, I think of a true statement more like Lewis says, uh, the door is shut. That can be true. But you wouldn't say that shut the door is true, would you? It's just a command. It just is. What does it mean for, for, for something God says like that to, to be true? What Lewis says, I think it's so helpful. The reason that the psalmist can delight like this can actually be revived and energized by what God has told us about himself and about his world. And the reason commandments even, he's not just talking about God's commands here, the psalmist is not, but even let's just take the commands. The reason that even the commands can be called true comes from seeing that that God's law to his people, his communication of himself to his people, happened in the midst of lots of other options. Israel was surrounded by people who thought about the world differently. They were surrounded by people who had different understanding of where it came from and of what it took to get the powers that be on your side. Different understandings of what human life is for, how precious it is, how you should aim it. Against those other options of its time, if you think of those other options as a desert, lifeless, then, then what God has told us, even in his commands, becomes refreshing, revives the soul, even tastes sweet. Here's what Lewis says. When a Jew looked at those worships of his neighbors all around him, When a Jew looked at those worships, when he thought of sacred prostitution or the babies thrown into the fire for Moloch, his own law, as he turned back to it, must have shone with an extraordinary radiance, sweeter than honey. Let us say like mountain water, like fresh air after a dungeon, like sanity after a nightmare. Does that sound arrogant to you? The notion that there could be a way, a true form of life, a way of of living well in the world. If it does sound arrogant to you, the notion of a true and perfect and sure and right way of living, I actually won't disagree with you. It would be arrogant for any of us to claim that we had access to that. It would be arrogant unless, unless the same all-powerful creator whom the Son obeys with joy has written that law, has put down in words that understanding of what a good and true and right and beautiful life is. Such a God, that God would have the perspective with which to declare what is right, to decide and establish what is right. He'd have the same right to obedience from us as humans that he has to the obedience of the Son and all other parts of his handiwork. 
Yeah, it would be arrogant for us to claim that we have his will and others don't unless he actually spoke, unless he actually communicated with words to tell us for our good. And that's what Christians believe, friends, if you're wondering. They don't believe that we have tapped into some sort of source, unlocked some sort of code no one else could, that we have some reason to boast because of all that we've discovered about the the good life. That's not what we believe at all. We have one hope of a true and right and beautiful way to live in this world and that is that the God who designed it all has told us what is. Christians, we should expect, I think, in this this time to learn this lesson that Israel knew all too well in a new way. I mean, it's way past time for us to be able to rely on a kind of generic and tasteless version of Christian culture that has been present in America for a long time. I think that's good for us. Because in a world of other options, the precepts of the Lord taste sweet. In a world of other options, His commandments can seem pure again. Our goal in holding to what God has said in his word is not apology on one hand, as if we have to be ashamed of our perspective and that it comes from scripture. It's not apology on one hand and it's, it's not self-righteous self-congratulation on the other hand. As if what we found in the scriptures were about us and not about God speaking What we're aiming for, what we're praying for, is just simple delight, joy in embracing what God has said to us. Not apology that shrinks back and is embarrassed of it. Not self-righteous self-congratulation that beats people over the head with it. But simple delight. People who see it as enlightening the eyes. People who taste it as sweet like honey. Now, all that said, I do think we've got to be really careful about arrogance. Even as we don't shrink back as Christians from from trying our best to understand what God has said in his word and then trying our best to explain it and to live from it in the eyes of other people, we do have to be really careful about arrogance because it's not not much of a step for us to become the Pharisee standing next to the tax collector in Jesus' story and saying, I delight in the law of the Lord. I feel like my soul is revived by his law. I don't know about what you're experiencing here, but I'm experiencing delight. Thank God that I am not like this man. But where Psalm 19 ends will not leave us with that option. God's law is like the sun. Nothing's hidden from its heat. Every, everything gets exposed. Even the parts of ourselves that we are able to hide from others and maybe even from ourselves, exposed under God's word. And that means, that means that, that no one stands innocent and the psalmist knows it. That's why in verse 12, this psalm turns from a psalm of praise, praising God for speaking, into a psalm of lament over what the psalmist has learned about himself in the light of what God has said. 
raises a question. What happens when we reject what God has said to us? When God has spoken to us, there's a great gift that He didn't have to give. What happens when we, by our own choices, have said thanks but no thanks? Look at what the psalmist prays. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, verse 12. In other words, please forgive me for the things that I've done that I didn't even know I was doing. Then verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Forgive me for what I've done. Please help me not to do the things I know I shouldn't do. The implication being, without your help, I'm just going to do them. Like, I'm going to see what you said. I'm going to reject what you said. I'm going to be like a sheep that goes astray, like everybody else, if you don't keep me back. He prays, let them not have dominion over me. The prayer of a man who knows what it is to be mastered by sin. He prays for forgiveness and he prays for protection. Forgiveness for what he's done and protection from what he might do. And in the end, what he wants is a life that's blameless, that's innocent. Verse 14 reads like, like, like language from the temple from sacrifices offered to God that are acceptable. He prays, just please, here, just give me a whole life that you love, that pleases you. Let, the, let, let my mouth, the things that I say to you, let what, what goes on in my heart at a level I might not even recognize, let, let everything about my life be acceptable in your sight. That's what he wants. That's what he knows he doesn't have. I read these last few verses as, as a question asked of God. What do we do about the fact that you have spoken to us and we have not listened to you? If these last few verses are a question, what does God say in response? What does he say about our rejection of what he's already said? And how do we find acceptance before him? That's this third point. We listen to God in nature. We listen to God in the Bible. Those those are great gifts to us. But if those are all we have, they offer us a beautiful model that we've already fallen short of. They offer us just as, equal, as equally as they offer reasons for joy, they offer reasons for despair. So we don't just listen for God in those places. We also have to listen to God in Jesus. One of the letters of the New Testament that picks up language like at the end of this psalm about things being acceptable in God's eyes is a letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. It's all about what it takes to be acceptable to God, to be holy when you're not on your own. Listen to the way that letter opens. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, that writer says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We might also add, by the Son by the lights of the heavens, by the beauty of the daisies, by the testimony of his law. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us. 
But in these last days, he says, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. What has God said to us in his son? God has spoken to us in Jesus a message that is perfectly matched to what Psalm 19 shows us we need. I want to encourage you to take Hebrews and read through it. It wouldn't take you that long. You'll see what I'm talking about. You'll see what this author was talking about. But let me just give you a couple examples. In Hebrews chapter 2, not long after the writer says that God has now spoken to us once and for all in these last days by Jesus, here is what he says about Jesus. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was God, with God before there was ever any world, in the image of God. He existed, but he became like us, took on bodies like, a body like ours. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. David says, declare me innocent of hidden faults. And God says, see my son, hear my son, your merciful, faithful high priest whose life and death have the power to wash clean every sin of every one of my people. Hear the psalmist crying out, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have mastery over me. Please help me with sin. I can't do this on my own. And he tells that psalmist and all of us who are listening, because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, the author says. Why? Because he lives forever to pray for them. He's praying right now for you that your sin will not have dominion over you. Ultimately, what God has said through Jesus is that by a single offering, chapter 10 of Hebrews, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. So we enter into his presence with confidence. We respond to what God said, not with fear, but with joy. Where can we hear him? We hear him in the world that he's made, in the words that he's spoken, And ultimately, we hear him in Jesus. Father, help us to hear what you've said. Give us hearts that love it. Lives that depend on it. Palates that are sensitive to it and crave it like water in the desert. And help us, we pray, as we respond to what you've said, to speak words to think thoughts, to experience affections in our heart that are acceptable to you through Jesus. We pray, amen.